Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. from the universe lately that perhaps more people like me want to have these types of reframing perspectives conversations Brent Seal share a poem and talk about what if people with mental illnesses have special powers, etc. And then I saw a gentleman in distress who's also labeled and he was talking about how he has a lot of empathy and he feels things deeply and that's one of the reasons why he was struggling and he doesn't like how other people were being treated so again more empathy and another individual I spoke with shared that they no longer want to be on medication and are tapering off but also have to take steps in order to have a very stress-free and gentle lifestyle for an extended period of time in order to make sure that's successful. And they talked about reading about the side effects and experiencing side effects. And I also had a conversation where a person brought up the question, am I more than my label? And that just broke my heart because we're so often forced to identify so strongly with our label that we lose touch with the other elements of ourselves. And there's infinite elements other than that label. And I feel that the label often misinterprets things it'll call things symptoms of illness when really it could be a sign of transformation or a sign that a person has extreme empathy. And some of us acquire this high sensitivity and then we're seeing and perceiving and feeling things that we've never felt before and we don't understand that language. And I feel like because we don't understand what we're perceiving and what we're seeing and what we're feeling, which when it's empathy is actually a lot to do with the other, feeling what the other is feeling or sensing what they're feeling or being able to read them so clearly that we're feeling what they're feeling. But when we don't know that this is what is happening, 
I feel like we get thoughts in our head that don't make sense or attack ourselves and lead to things like depression because when we're seeing something and we're so used to identifying with our thoughts and our ego thought process and that can be so-called normal and healthy though I question that if we start sensing more and more of the other yet we only know how to think in terms of ourselves when we're sensing the pain or the feelings or more information of the other or the situation extrapolating if we still are strongly identified with our ego thinking process that ego thinking process can actually become more irrational or more incongruent because we're seeing things and feeling things of the other but we only have the language of me so when we see and experience and feel things of the other but we only have the language of me the language of me gets the volume turned up and it becomes more painful so what I'm trying to say is if somebody's in pain and struggling and, and a, an empath can sense that but they don't even know they're sensing that or even if they do know they're sensing it they feel powerless to be able to help that person or support that person it's going to be turned into potentially thoughts about oneself attacking oneself so if I see someone in pain I might think it's my fault they're in pain when really I'm just feeling that they're in pain and I feel so compassionate and empathetic that I don't know what to do about that and the only thing I can do is turn that into a thought about myself to attack myself to sort of be congruent with the pain that I'm sensing and then it's hard to not think that something is wrong with me that is thinking these thoughts and I'm not saying this is what happens for me per se but I've just been seeing this a little bit because in my effort to create different perspectives for myself and self-dialogue and different ways to think about it and see it and ponder it I see that more when I see other people like me who have been labeled and pathologized so I don't actually see them as having anything wrong with them at all but the thing is since we don't know how to act based on these high sensitivities we have to turn it against ourselves in order to put a barrier up against the action that we want to do maybe Or it's the only way to really, it's the only action we know how to take is to turn it against ourselves because we usually turn a lot of things against ourselves. And a lot of times people are judging other people. But if they've, but if someone's got in touch with their empathy and they're not judging, but they're feeling, now instead of having judgments, 
we're having judgments against ourselves because we're not actively judging, we're feeling. But since we have this inner judge going on all the time, those feelings of others, for others, with others, again get turned against ourselves. Because again, the ego is our own voice attacking ourselves. So if we have a so-called regular ego consciousness and we're walking around kind of in our own ego world and, and pretty much blind to the feelings of others mostly, especially because we're judging them all the time, we're not really reading others, we're judging others. We're projecting onto them instead of really receiving them. Now when we start to receive a person and not judge, what, how, what do we even do with that information? And if we don't have a language for communicating that, and we don't even have the language for understanding that we are one consciousness and we're one humanity, what I'm saying is when we sense that extra information, that extra energy, that feeling with our hearts, it again gets turned against us in our own voice. It's our own voice turned against ourselves. And then that poor person who's an empath, and I only say poor because unfortunately we don't understand it fully and we don't create the space through which people of that consciousness can also thrive. These people have to, I feel they almost start turning their voice against themselves even more in order to protect them from what it is they're seeing because they're feeling so much. So it's easier just to attack oneself with one's own thoughts than continue to feel that so strongly, even though a person still would continue to feel that very strongly. And if a person is sensing someone else's pain and there's nothing they feel they can do, or maybe they don't even know that's what they're sensing, then they start to blame themselves for that other person's pain, mainly because they don't know what they can do to help them. And they partially blame themselves because they see that we're all one. So if someone else is in pain, then it's partly everyone else's fault. So we're responsible for each other. And what I'm saying is that also a person, if they start to have these perceptions of sensitivity and then they're thinking things that are, are creating a disturbance in themselves and then creating it so they the person the empath is perceived as having some kind of mental health difficulty well then that person starts to isolate which will sort of protect the person from their perceptions their sensitivities and so I was thinking about how complicated and interesting that is but also in terms of, well, what to do with these perspectives, if anything, and I think part of it would be, I'm wondering, and I don't really know, what can we do with these empathetic and sensitive perceptions? And that's another thing, people who've been labeled often 
are empaths, very sensitive. And then they're so sensitive and we only have this language of me ego that as we walk around perceiving things, we can only think about it in relation to the me ego. And then that gets confusing and just, and, and painful. And then, you know, there can be depression and anxiety and all these things, which are other thoughts. But how can we change and create a language of this high sensitivity to realize that we are very sensitive and we're feeling these things in order to not maybe take it on ourselves and think it's our own problem when really we're sensing some of the problems in the situations that we're in in daily life and how is it that we can act differently to to change that in terms of if I'm feeling someone's pain can I hold a space of compassion for that person instead of taking it on myself can I look with compassion and non-judgment and unconditional love and that look is part of the healing how we look at people which is one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and that might be one of the only things we can do is look at it differently and look at ourselves differently and see that when we're feeling things it's not necessarily a symptom of mental illness but it's almost a mystery it's almost a puzzle what is it that I'm really feeling it probably has nothing to do with me and my own supposed personal problems because Part of the empath process is that we're not so identified with our own pain but that opens us up to being sensitive to the other's pain which is necessary for some of us to be able to do this in order to create a different world but instead of being in touch with that sensitivity and utilizing the gift of that to help inform the change of the world we take the sensitivity to be a mental illness and our own problem and then hide away and we're not using our gifts to help the world and that's actually one of the things we want to do as empaths is be altruistic because altruism implies that we're all one and when we're empaths we see that we're one consciousness because we can feel other things besides just our own self and we can feel it by seeing it all we have to do is just look so again it's about clear perception and clear vision but when we see something and it's kind of painful we can turn that into painful thoughts against ourselves and that can eventually end up really crushing us and someone told me that they were told they'll never get better and they're gonna be like this forever and they'll always have this problem and I was thinking to myself, why would any doctor say that? That's the rudest thing. 28 years from now or 10 years from now, that is not going to be the case. And we need to start talking in terms of how we would ideally envision it to be. And part of what I see is people seeing that they've actually become connected with some of their gifts which is a different way of perceiving and acting and feeling and it's actually being in, more in touch with 
other dimensions of our inner being of humanity. And we're medicated out of this high sensitivity instead of being facilitated to to utilize it. And that could be a ways away before it's actually really recognized and utilized. But I feel like we can at least start talking to each other about these other ways we want to think about ourselves and see ourselves other than the label. When this person told me that they were wondering if they were anything more than their labels, it just really broke my heart and it really hit me in that all the stuff that I've been talking about with myself, for myself, to strengthen in my own neurology and being that that we are more than our label. Our label can be a little slice of the pie that is useful in getting certain supports as those are the only supports available through the mainstream system and but not actually really buying into that story because it's just a story and unfortunately it's told to us by authority figures doctors and professionals who have all this education and so we can tend to believe them it's like a really bad nocebo effect and and it's fine if people want to really believe that about themselves if that's the most helpful and useful but from my experience just interacting with my peers and talking with different people I just feel like I see so much that shows me that what I've been talking about with myself has a lot of validity, especially 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 regarding and I don't want to say especially because that almost makes it sound like what I'm going to say next is the thing and there's no one thing there's so much but I see these individuals with labels as very empathetic very sensitive beings and I know some people that have labels and talk to them but I just find it interesting that lately conversations are happening that are some of the elements of things I've been talking about with myself, but I'm not starting them. And so when that happens, it makes me really feel like people who've experienced this do want to think about themselves differently and do want to talk about themselves differently. And if we think and talk about ourselves differently, with each other at least, 
and still have the label stuff where necessary, then we'll potentially be able to unfold something different for ourselves. And so that's the thing with this empathy and this altruism. I feel like we need to be altruistic together. And I've talked about this before, how being altruistic right away sort of acknowledges the space that a person entered into. So to make that part of the healing process is powerful because a lot of people are trying to get in touch with that when they go through this transconscious experience. And I feel that people that feel these extreme anxieties and depressions and things, it's possible they're just feeling so much more than themselves. And so when that happens, we want to do something about the anxiety, but what we really want to do is actually do something to help the world. And I'm not saying that in every case that is how it is. But I'm just feeling like a lot of this so-called mental illness is just getting in touch with the fact that we're all one consciousness. And when we're, when we're in touch with that, we're not perceiving based on separation, whether we are aware of it or not. So we're perceiving so much more than what our ego band of consciousness would allow us to perceive. And when we do, we get overwhelmed. And then it's turned into our own problem to deal with, like our own ego problem. When the problem is the ego and the fact that we want to cooperate, we're designed to be altruistic, we're designed to have meaning and purpose in life. And if everybody on the planet had a completely different meaning and a completely different purpose, we wouldn't be able to get along at all. What I'm trying to say is that part of the meaning and the purpose is just to be helpful and participate and cooperate and be involved together and that's why I don't like the whole idea of personal growth because I feel like if we grow in cooperation and in world centricity and altruism we'll naturally grow personally in a way but we actually need to learn how to grow together and how to connect together not all of us doing our own little personal things. And so with trans consciousness, I talked about having access to that world-centric consciousness as well as one's ego consciousness. Well, the world-centric consciousness is the part we all share. So when we have access to that, we all share that. So if we're in touch with that as people that are labeled, if we communicate at that level, because we can communicate with each other, what's your diagnosis, what's yours, what's your symptoms, what's mine? Or we can talk at the empathetic, trans-conscious, altruistic level that we've already seen and are in touch with. And when we're talking from that perspective, we're speaking the same language, which is a heart-centered, language of clear perception and recognizing patterns and seeing the pain of other people. So 
So labeled people, I feel, feel deeply, but don't know how to act based on that. Because we're used to acting based on the sound of our ego voice moving us around, usually incongruent with what's going on. But when we get in touch with that empathy and that empathetic perception, society's not designed to act based on that soundscape. And it creates a different soundscape. And I feel like when we're sort of in between trying to decouple from the soundscapes of our ego and other soundscapes are coming in, they can be so-called delusions and hallucinations, but that's only temporary to really show that we're decoupling from that other mode of existing. I won't even say seeing because I think we don't really see in that state. And when we start to see, we start to feel more because we can see what is happening. We can see someone's posture. We can see the look on somebody's face. And we can read it. But if we don't know what we're reading, the soundscape inside can be even more confusing and incongruent. And part of the trouble is too, we're not voicing that. So if we never give voice to that, it may end up just getting more and more muddled over time. And so I could see somebody and see their pain and see the pattern of their whole way of gesturing and being and feel that pain and not know that's what I'm sensing and then maybe think thoughts about myself and then feel anxious or or something or I could see that and look with compassion and understanding and unconditional love and know that I'm feeling that person's pain and just holding that and that might create a different soundscape or it might just be silent or I could see that and if I was to a different point maybe that would create the soundscape of me going up and talking to that person or saying hi or some other kind of gesture so what i'm trying to say is if i'm unaware that i'm perceiving empathetically i'll probably have some odd soundscapes in my head because i'm not because I'm seeing with that language, but I not translate, but I'm not translating that into some kind of gesture or, or word. Or, I could see that, and seeing that translates into instant action. And if we see that and we don't act, or hold with compassion or whatever it is that we can do in that moment, the inaction of not doing when we're feeling that gets turned into something that we have to process at a later time or perhaps if a person's very empathetic but they don't really understand that or realize that they're walking by everything feeling it all not doing anything and then feeling bad and that's translated into bad thoughts against themselves because they're not doing anything about what they're seeing and feeling
and I'm not saying people have to do something, but that's part of what I talked about with mania. You get to this place where you have to act. You can't delay. There is only now. And so it can be kind of dangerous because you will act based on what you perceive is needed in the moment, not thinking about tomorrow and then not even noticing what's happening right in front of you. So I almost feel like part of the conversation is just talking to other empaths, to other highly sensitive people, to other altruists who see that we're one consciousness, which doesn't mean, oh, I have to fix the world. It just means that what I see, what I feel, what I perceive isn't just to do with little me. So part of it would be a conversation around how do we dissipate some of this energy of perception into action? And part of it too is if somebody is labeled with a mental illness and told that they're never going to get better and they have this personal problem, when in self-dialogue or in conversation, one might come to an understanding of themselves as an empath, as a healer, as a highly sensitive person. If a person thinks, I have this mental illness, they're just going to continue to walk by and, and not interact because they see themselves as some kind of deficient person who shouldn't interact with people that much and keep one's head down. Whereas if one sees, actually, I'm more of an empath, I'm a healer, I'm a, a sensitive person, I feel things deeply, then one might actually start to interact in a way that's different. Might actually begin to share the gifts of that empathy. Because people that are in pain actually might need some of the gifts of that empathy which could just be to listen or to say hi or to smile and acknowledge another human being and if a person just thinks that I have a mental illness and self-stigmatizes they're not going to reach out in those ways when part of this transformation process could be actually giving us the sense and the feeling inside so we can begin to reach out in different ways. And that's why I've also said that it could be that we're here to help them. And that's why I feel like the next part for me after all this self-dialogue is to be more in connection with embodied altruism. I've said embodied mania, but it's embodied empathy and even for myself, being part of the mental health system and different aspects of the system that I don't agree with so much and other aspects that I absolutely love and want to be a part of forever, I realized today that I haven't really shared my gifts. 
I haven't really talked about myself in the way that I would want to really I've sort of kept a lot of it quiet but I feel like I'm getting to a place where I feel more ready to actually say no I have some gifts and I'm sure a lot of other people do too and they're just not saying anything and maybe the gifts are medicated away but even if they are people might have a sense of yeah I did feel that way at one point or another and I can't say what other people's experiences are but I feel like since that transconscious dimension is is shared that if we've had a taste of it that we can talk about it in a similar way and so I'm having hints that this conversation wants to happen and not only that I feel it needs to happen because to me it's sort of unacceptable that my friends and peers are thinking about themselves and in terms of their labels and, and stigmatizing themselves in that way not just because that is painful but because it's robbing that person of seeing their gifts and seeing their capacities and that if a person was able to connect more with their gifts and capacities the part that feels like mental illness might start to weather away and I don't think it's gonna wither away by just medicating 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 or just trying to survive or by buying into so much to that story it's gonna wither away by starting to connect with those dimensions that we connected with in those other states of consciousness but being able to do it in a conscious way and unfold it in a conscious way and in an intentional way for the best of all the thing is that the professionals don't have time to listen to us in this way and actually learn a lot about our diversity and complexity they just listen for certain symptoms and then slap labels on us and then tell us that that's our label which gets us to forget and stop thinking about all those other aspects maybe there's 10 bad symptoms but maybe there's a thousand good elements and so by focusing on those bad symptoms we're suppressing the good elements whereas if we focus on the good elements maybe those bad symptoms go away because those bad symptoms could just be bits of the transition to getting in touch with that other dimension those other dimensions and the problem is that the system wants us to go back to the one-dimensional ego perception and that's not the way that the evolution of consciousness is going so pills can't suppress the evolution of consciousness forever and we'll stop stigmatizing ourselves when we connect with our gifts and see that we have value in something to contribute 
And by having those conversations with each other at least, because we can give each other that time and we can be a witness to each other, we can create that context through which to see ourselves differently. And when that happens, we won't self-stigmatize. And we'll be too busy doing that to even care that much about the fact that we were labeled. We can outgrow that without having to fight it. If we outgrow it, there's no need to fight. But if we waste our energy fighting, then we won't be able to grow. When we're in fight or flight, we can't do growth and repair. So I feel like if through our conversations we can switch to growth and repair, we won't need to fight or flight. The last two days I was feeling totally antsy, like there were ants in my brain cells doing a dance, and not a very coordinated one. But today I feel a little bit more organized. And I think it's okay to have those days that are sort of chaotic because I actually watched a really cool movie called I Origins or I Origin, I can't remember. And had I not felt kind of tired and kind of like I didn't know what to do on my to-do list of things I need to do before I go, then I wouldn't watch that movie. And I really enjoyed it and I thought it was quite profound. I like those movies that are kind of scientific but not really because it's not really true but it could be true. Sort of like psychological thrillers or just psychological dramas in a way. So that was a really good movie. I definitely recommend it to myself. And yesterday I didn't feel like making a video because I felt sort of off. And I really didn't know what to do with myself, so I was watching TED Talks on Apple TV. And usually when I watch them, I watch them on my computer. And the app on Apple TV is sort of limited in what you can pick. Or at least there's sort of this pre-selection that isn't necessarily the best per se, but it's kind of random. So I was watching them randomly. And I gravitated towards the ones about the brain and neuroscience and it was talking about neurogenesis and there was this doctor on there who is a neuroscientist and she gave a story of how she said one of her friends who is also a doctor but an oncologist was saying that even when some of his patients would hear that they were in full remission from the treatment from the drugs and the chemo and everything they would still get depression. And she said back to them, that's because the drugs given to stop the cancer cells from multiplying also stop the baby neurons from being born and generated in the brain, which is called neurogenesis. And then I think she said that the cancer doctor said back that adults don't grow new neurons, which is something he might've learned in school, but neuroscientists know that we do generate new neurons. And then she went on to talk about that 
the main part that they study at least that generates new neurons is the hippocampus and I've talked about that before in terms of the ekphoric sensation and implicit and explicit memories which is what Dr. Daniel Siegel talks about but they're talking about how that's one place where there's definitely neurogenesis and one scientist predicted or thought that there could be 700 neurons born per day in the hippocampus or generated I should say. So I find this stuff interesting because she talked about to the cancer doctor friend about how cancer drugs stop neurogenesis. To me it could be possible that some of the psych meds stop neurogenesis and that might be a way to stop some of the psychosis. It could be numbing the brain of neurogenesis in general and I think neurogenesis happens when we see something new, we see something more beyond what we normally see so it's blocking that. It's blocking us from seeing something new and generating new brain cells. So I thought that was interesting just because it was the first time I've ever heard someone say, a doctor say that a drug actually stops neurogenesis and that could cause depression. Because to me, a lot of what happens in mania is the opposite of that. It's maybe too much neurogenesis or not being able to support oneself through that second brain growth, which I also talked about in videos a long time ago. I don't remember what I said exactly, but I really doubt that anybody's tried to measure the neurogenesis of somebody in mania. They're just scratching the surface of actually being able to measure this neurogenesis thing. And so I might skip all over the place today a little bit because I changed my note-taking process to an actual paper book so I'm not looking at the computer so much and I'm again embodied writing with my hands instead of typing and staring at the computer screen so maybe it'll be a little bit less organized but I don't really care and another thing she talked about with the neurogenesis was she talked about things that help neurogenesis. She talked about running has actually been studied to help neurogenesis. She even said chewing, chewing crunchy foods. So in the spirit of that, I went and I bought something to masticate with. I realized I haven't been chewing anything crunchy. Mm, these are good even though I bought the non-organic ones. I didn't want to pay double the price. I'm just really not
having a flow of Blah, blah, I won't say it. She also said, resveratrol from grapes or red wine helps with neurogenesis. And so does blueberries. And I think that's part of what I'm really interested in is just brain growth, brain change, brain state change, altered states, but actually making them stages, making them sustainable and also making them into something to be curious about instead of afraid of. I was thinking about how it felt like I could hear aliens in my head again this time. It's almost like there are aliens in my brain. I'm taking lithium and I have been for nearly six years and that's something that is alien to my brain and it's assault. And I talked to the people at the point of return Dot org or something who help people get off meds and she said lithium is a salt that accumulates in your brain and so my brain is being assaulted it's full of salt it's full of lithium salt so it could be symbolic it could be this holographic projection of some element of truth but it's just being mis misrepresented by sound by thoughts It could be it could be my brain trying to tell me there is something in my brain. Maybe it's time to get off the lithium at some point. And maybe the brain just like the body doesn't really know how to talk to us and the brain doesn't really know how to talk to us. The brain itself It's like the language of emotions and the language of gestures and the language of our body. So when something's wrong, it's like feeding us this stuff that's like delusion or hallucination. But it's one of the only ways that the brain can actually talk to us or the body can talk to us. Sometimes it talks to us by getting some kind of physical disease and then the doctor talks to us and tells us, well, this is what the physical disease is. But if we didn't have a doctor to tell us that, we would eventually feel some kind of pain or maybe even have hallucinations or something. For example, I know somebody with Wilson's disease and it's a rare genetic disease that causes copper to accumulate in the brain. And then a person starts to hallucinate eventually when they have the onset of it in their late teens or early 20s. And a lot of times these people are misperceived to be on drugs or something until a million tests later, they find out they have this Wilson's disease, this copper accumulation in the brain and body because of the liver not being able to process it properly. So the hallucination is a way for the brain to be saying there's something going on in the brain. And I feel too like the hallucinations that we get with so-called mental illness are or something going on in the brain, but it's maybe not necessarily a physical problem, though it could be physically represented, though we can't actually measure it. What I'm trying to say, it's the environment. The brain is perceiving the environment, the society that we've created as human beings together, and it's 
telling us that this is not the right environment for the brain. And so the brain starts producing these hallucinations and we think that the person has a problem, but it's not a person's personal problem. It's, it's the whole collective, it's evolutionary. These people are compasses for what we are all encompassed in. And aside is that this is one of my earthing mats and it's good to be connected to the earth. It plugs into the grounding outlet and sometimes I remember to use it, but it has to be on bare skin for it to be effective. But I like to put my computer on it so then I'm grounded when I'm on my computer. And I have an earthing sheet for my bed that is plugged into the wall as well. So it's like sleeping on the grass without having to sleep on the grass. And what I was gonna say about feeling weird for two days it could have been PMS, and it probably was, but also I took it as a sign to start again taking SAM E S adenosyl methionine E, something like that. And I was taking it before, but when I was on a bit more trazodone, which is an antidepressant, I stopped taking it. And when I was taking the extra Seroquel because I think it's a little bit contraindicated. So last night I went down to one Trazodone instead of one and a half and I took Sam E this morning so it could be helping me to feel a little bit better, a little bit more able to perceive, I think. I was going to say be motivated or focus, but I think it's more like being able to see. Because being able to see is just seeing and acting. So I will go down to a lower amount of trazodone. Neurogenesis. I remember reading that chewing something crunchy helps with depression and it's likely because of this neurogenesis thing. And I've also started taking some St. John's wort again, which is also something not good to take with antidepressants. And trazodone is an antidepressant, though I take it for sleep. So I don't want to be on too much trazodone if I'm on the St. John's wort and the SAMe. And these are the things I take for me that I had DNA testing with my naturopath to discover that these would be good for me. So everybody's different. I actually feel that I've read that SAM-E is contraindicated for bipolar. So it has to be done carefully and under the supervision of a naturopath. So other things that are good for neurogenesis from this presentation were flavonoids, which is from the blueberries, as well as intermittent fasting. And I know Dr. Marcola is going to write a book about this soon, or is in the process. And that could be something like just not eating on Sunday, or not eating 
except for a four-hour period of time, that's another one that some people do. They'll eat all their food between 12 and 4, and that's it. So having that period of fasting. Another way of fasting is ketogenic diet. It's not really fasting, but it's kind of fasting in a way. It helps to regenerate the mitochondria. And also caloric restriction, so eating less food. And that's something I've been doing naturally for the last month and a half or so. I just started eating less, mainly partly because of stress, but then I sort of stuck with it and now I just eat breakfast and dinner and I don't eat huge meals, whereas before I'd be hungry all day and it sort of made my body not hungry all day long anymore. And I feel a bit lighter, so I think I'm probably doing the whole caloric restriction right now on most days. And I like it because it's totally removed the habit of eating and and I don't feel like this hungry, ravenous person all the time. And the next thing for me will be to eat healthier. I want to introduce some spirulina, eat carrots or something crunchy, eat some more blueberries like this whole neurogenesis thing talks about. Also folic acid and zinc were said to be neurogenic as well as curcumin from turmeric and omega-3 fatty acids from fish oil. I do take fish oil, I do take zinc, I take folic acid as well. And also it says that vitamin A deficiency and B deficiency can cause neurogenesis to turn off. So that's like saying that it's important to have enough vitamin A and B vitamins. And high sugar is not good for neurogenesis. And I'm pretty sure I talked about how a lady I saw speak said that sugar turns off BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor. And that's another thing that's important for brain cell growth. And so that was a TED Talk by Sandrine Theray. And there was another TED Talk I watched, which was by Jocelyn Bloch, which was about how the brain might be able to repair itself, because the brain isn't good at self-repair. But they found some cells that, in culture, turned into stem cells, and they were able to grow those cells under very specific conditions and then put them back in the brain of monkeys, unfortunately. And then the monkey's brain actually healed and the monkey was able to do the task faster again. And they were saying if the brain was healthy and not damaged, then when they re-injected these stem cells, they just sort of redistributed themselves in the brain and didn't really do anything. They just kind of disappeared or it wasn't clear whether they just redistributed themselves or whether they kind of did that and dissolved or they just went somewhere else. 
So that wasn't clear, but I just found it interesting. They said those brain cells are active when we're a fetus and our brains are needing to fold. And I was thinking that, and this is just playing with thinking about this. They were able to find these cells and then see these stem cells and then they had to grow them in a very specific culture and they had to do a lot of different experiments to find out how they could culture these cells, how they could get them to grow. It makes me wonder what brain condition naturally would have to be there for them to be a culture like for them for them to be naturally cultured in the brain so if these cells are like stem cells but not really they were sort of specific kind of cells could there be a time when our brain is in a certain state that requires new folds like imagine that it grows imagine that with our ego thinking and our dopamine brain it's kind of limited we're using this five percent or however they say it and then through the second brain growth this neurogenesis neuroplasticity of I want to say supposed mental illness because people are seeing things beyond and this perception that is actually growing and changing the brain maybe they need maybe people like that are using those cells to create new folds in the brain I wonder because Krishnamurti talks about a radical mutation in the mind we actually have to undergo a radical mutation in the mind and I feel like it's possible he knew stuff about the brain just by really inquiring like he did but he wasn't a scientist and he couldn't prove these things scientifically though they may be proven but he never went into real depth about what he was talking about he did sometimes but you find pieces here and there of him going into the depth of what it was he perceived what I'm saying is if there is such a thing as a radical mutation in the mind through say enlightenment for example maybe those cells that are part of the repair will repair our brains maybe our brains are sort of damaged as they are as egos because we're thinking about ourselves all the time we're not really seeing but if we switch to seeing and and say someone moves toward enlightenment maybe their brain does mutate and maybe those cells do get used they just think they're there they've got to be there for a reason because the thing is there can't just be for repair because if they were then when somebody's brain got really damaged they would go in and do the repair but they don't but they just happen to discover these cells and they're able to really culture them in very specific medium and then inject them back in to a monkey and then the monkey gets better maybe they're for a different kind of repair that we don't know about because we think that the way our brains operate now the way we've been programmed is the natural state when it's not I think those cells could be there to actually repair and 
refold and mutate our brains either when somebody moves towards enlightenment or actually at some point in the future of humanity when there's a large enough selective pressure for that environment to be created within the brain and body and perception to activate those cells to change the brain to the next evolution of whatever it is that we're supposed to evolve into they could be actually for us to evolve to the next level of humanity could be just a switch that makes our heads a little bigger and then those things fold the brain a little bit more and we got a bigger brain and oof, we look like aliens I just like to think about that stuff and the other thing they don't talk about much with this whole neurogenesis thing They don't talk about the interpersonal aspect. I think about Dr. Daniel Siegel's interpersonal neurobiology and how the brain is a relational organ, it's a social organ. And those social connections and that empathy and compassion and friendship grows our brain. Without social connection, without touch, without so many things, our brain atrophies. And even how I discovered that Skin-to-skin -skin touch for humans actually increases blood flow due to that whole changing the right changing the charge between the blood cells and the walls of the vessels so it can go through properly and then we're more oxygenated and when we're more oxygenated we have more blood flow to the brain and when we have more blood flow to the brain there can be more neurogenesis and that's part of what running does is it increases blood flow well so does physical touch so this connection even looking into somebody's eyes i'm sure increases oxygen so all these other things these relational things these perceiving kindness and doing kind gestures and kind acts would also grow the brain. It grows the social brain, it grows the relational brain. So they often talk about in terms of, oh, eat your blueberries and and have your omega-3s, but you can do that all you want if you're not relating based on altruistic and empathetic and compassionate principles. Your brain is gonna be shriveling up faster than if you were to eat blueberries every day, all day for the rest of your life. So many of these things we need because we've been trained to use our minds the wrong way. So I wonder about interpersonal neurogenesis. Another thing I did today, I got my glitter. Remember what that's for? Oh yeah. So a better question might be, what is the brain trying to tell us by hallucinating? 
it's not telling us something about the person it's telling us about the condition it's in the environment it's in what it sees beyond what we don't see and it's also trying to show us the dangers of thought and thinking and the self and the personal me and being isolated in our perceptions And when we relate our perceptions to our own personal self, it's always isolating. And in terms of the relational neurogenesis, I think back to when I was in the psych ward and that person that I know visited me and it was the most hopeless day and I felt terrible and after she left, I felt so much better. It was almost like her presence, her care, her seeing me and witnessing me unconditionally jump-started my neurogenesis because of our relationship we already had a connection and we had a connection and then she came to physically connect and that connection and all those associations with that she brought all those positive associations because she was from a place where I had more associations it almost just turned those relational circuits on and those were able to usurp the circuits that were very antsy because of the medication that I was put on that I wasn't doing well on. And that's the miracle and power of relationship. And I wrote down that the point of the embodied mind is to be relational. So if I do all these neurogenic things, like eat my blueberries and chew my carrots, take my omega-3s and run, but then when I go up to be relational, I'm a complete jerk, then that's going to undo a lot of that neurogenic activity. What I'm trying to say is that if we're able to be our best self neurogenically and grow our best brain, we need to actually reinforce that with the equivalent gestures and actions with our body embodied as a relational and gesturetic apparatus instrument. And so when I was sharing about the woman coming to visit me, I think she almost sparked neurogenesis in me. Even if it wasn't actually new neurons, it was actually turning on some of the circuits and connections that in my fear and awful state were taking a back seat. She almost brought them back to the forefront. So there's this reactivation of the relational mind, which is more powerful than the drug. The care of a person is more powerful than a drug. So I feel like not only can we activate neurogenesis and facilitate it within ourselves by taking omega-3s and eating blueberries and things like that we can be neurogenic activators for someone else 
by these epigesturetic and endogesturetic and endomimetic and epimimetic ways. If we do something, for example, that makes somebody fearful, we're turning off their neurogenesis. But if we do something to make somebody feel safe and like they're being received kindly, that's going to turn it back on. So it's not just about these individual factors. It's what we're doing, our actions and our thoughts. I would say that thoughts turn off neurogenesis because thoughts are old. So they're old brain cells happening over and over again. And those are old, so it's not anything new. So to make a new connection, we have to see the connection. So it's actually about seeing. And what I was saying with the whole thing about a person being in so-called psychosis and having hallucinations and saying things that don't seem like they have any relevance in reality, I was thinking it's sort of equivalent to how in a flock of birds, one bird will be the bird that calls out if they see danger. And by sitting there and calling out, they're actually making themselves a target they're making it so that predator is going to come and get them first. They could just fly away and be the first to leave because they saw it first. But they call out. And I feel like with this whole hallucination, we're actually calling out about stuff that we see. It's a predator that we see. And it's actually thought itself. And we're calling out about it, but we don't know how to do that properly and the trouble is that once we see it it's kind of too late and then we're saying stuff that doesn't make sense in order to point it out because once we've seen it we're sort of beyond it and when we're beyond it we can't be used by it but it uses us and then we're not making sense and then we're misperceived and then we're captured And I feel like I shouldn't talk about that too much because it seems kind of big, but... And I was thinking about insight and how insight comes from sight. When we see something, we can have an insight, and it's not the same as thought. Whereas thought is more like in sound. It's this sound that's just repeating inside. And when we have in-sound, we can't have insight. When we see something, we understand something. The in-sound, the thought, is quiet. And we have something new sneaking in. And it's kind of like sound, and it's kind of like sight. And we see it. And then we can give voice to it. Now for most people, I think that doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it makes us really pause and, and, and we're waiting and then we see it. We see it and then it comes to us what we just saw. Now that can happen a lot. It can actually happen too much. And so insight is seeing the relatedness of things often. And the relatedness is the space in between those two 
things. And from that space, when we see that space, we can give voice to that space that we saw. Whereas if there's always this in sound happening, there's no space for that other sound of insight. When we see the space between two things. Normally we're seeing along the track of the in sound and there's no space at all. It's like a line that we're seeing and there's no space between one thought, one sound and another. And it's just this line. There's no, there's no two things through which to see the space in between. Sometimes when I get to that place where I see too much, I see that I am that space. I feel like I am that space. And I feel like it's difficult because if I'm sitting at a table with a couple of people, like five people, I feel like I'm all those people and me and all of this space. I don't feel like I'm me in this separate body, so it feels weird. I do prefer the perception of just feeling like me in a body. I guess the weird part of it is, part of the weird part of it is that when I leave those people, those particular people, I wonder they're still out there, right? Because if I felt like all of us when we were together, then who are we when we're apart? I don't get it. Sometimes I feel like I'm supposed to actually be getting used to some of these sensations. I want to eventually take a course with Patch Adams or his education program one of his courses but I was on his website and he has a quote friendship is the best medicine and I think that's true I'm actually gonna write to him I think he only reads handwritten letters not emails and I thought of a little phrase listening over labels and that goes with the friendship thing right I watched another TED Talk in my random TED Talk watching by Ricardo Semler. And his was one of the most impressive TED Talks I've ever listened to. He was talking about other ways that he has structured his business to be non-controlling and people setting their own hours and so many different things and it was really amazing and then he also talked about how he helped to start this school called Lumiere School where the kids have a lot of freedom in what they learn and the way he describes it in the TED talk is really cool and I'm kind of interested in the education of children because 
I think the way we're educated now, our brains get so warped that a certain amount of us develop these so-called mental illnesses. It's like a scar in the brain, which is a scar created by our own voice constantly talking to us and saying things against ourselves and other people. That's not what the brain is designed for. It's designed for connection. It's designed to be social and not just outwardly social while inwardly it's being very antisocial. We wouldn't want our thoughts texted to all our friends, to our whole contact list. So that's not really social, yet we're trying to be social outwardly. But the way we're educated actually creates that inside. So I thought what he talked about was really cool. And then I went to his website and he has a document about leadership. I think it's called Leading Wise or something. Because he's all about wisdom. I haven't read the whole document yet, but I skimmed through it and there was a part about a teal organization. And it says it replaces lack of purpose with evolutionary purpose. It says a teal organization bases their strategies on what they sense the world is asking of them. And I think that's amazing. I feel like if I create some kind of peer-run organization, that's really the key, is what is the world asking of us? And I think one of the things, at least I feel, if I want to just say right now, I'm kind of a teal organization or I'm a teal organism, I feel like the world is asking me to have this conversation with myself because I am. I'm trying to talk about it differently and infinitely and not in terms of right and wrong, but creatively, holistically, adaptively, so many different things. It's not, it's opening space, it's opening up more conversation, it's creating more memes, it's learning and actually learning was one of the things that that other TED talk said creates neurogenesis, creates new neurons. So this is just learning with myself, from myself, by talking to myself and not having any kind of motive but to just talk and give voice to something else that keeps changing and sometimes folds back upon itself and sometimes it goes beyond itself. So I'm definitely going to read more of this document. It also has videos in the document because I am really interested in starting some kind of peer-run thing and Again, what do we sense the world is asking of us? Is it just asking us to share our story so that we reduce stigma of mental illness? Or are we trying to 
become visionaries and share our gifts and be a neurotribe and take our unique place in society that is going to help Gaia. I feel like a lot of times we give voice to Gaia. We're talking about random stuff which seems like delusions but we're actually talking about what Gaia wants us to talk about which is deforestation or when we're in such pain sometimes something comes out of our mouth that's not very congruent because we don't know the language of Gaia. We don't know what we're feeling. We don't know where these energies are coming from. But part of this conversation, in my view, of what the world is asking from us is that we need to speak as the world, not as the ego self. And we're trying to speak as the world and we're trying to learn to do that, but it's always misinterpreted as us being out there. I feel like the world is asking us to step into our gifts or give voice to our gifts or talk about things in a different way. Not just talk about ourselves and our our symptoms, but seeing that our symptoms could be our strength. And they're not really symptoms of our own personal mental illness, but they're symptoms of the greater troubles and that we're sensing them, not just intellectually, but actually. We're highly sensitive people, and even if we weren't growing up, we've acquired that capability. So we need to design our lifestyle for that. We need to create safety for ourselves in the meantime, and also have strategies to prevent falling into the trajectory of needing so much medical attention. And Ricardo asked the question, which was one of his guiding questions, what am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? Why am I talking to myself like this? To learn? To learn about myself? To think about the brain? ponder, to wonder, to be curious, all these dimensions that we innately had as children, to play with ideas, to realize I have no idea, to say I don't know, to say maybe. Maybe to invite other people to start doing the same. To write over that story that we've been told about ourselves and start creating a new one by talking to each other differently. And I think part of it is there's a selective pressure for us to grow towards we. And when we get a label, a lot of times we're more connected with we, the space, what we're sensing in that space, instead of just in our own mind and, and body. And that language that we don't understand, as it's not verbal, but when we feel it and then we try to put words to it, doesn't sound like it makes any sense. 
we're sensing something other than ourselves and that's maybe part of the point of being a human being is to sense something other than ourselves than just what the ego was telling us about ourselves because that's pretty boring it gets pretty old pretty fast we've probably been saying the same stuff to ourselves for years now we could speak as that ego self or we could speak as perception as Gaia which we all are so we all know that language we're just disconnected from it we forget it's probably a language of celebration of ecstasy not just of solving these problems that we've created for ourselves And part of suffering so much and feeling so much suffering and we feel the suffering of the world and then it's internalized as thoughts against ourselves and we think it's our own suffering or it's resonating with our own suffering and, and amplifying that we don't understand we're feeling the world's suffering and if we're feeling that that is our impetus to act to do something altruistic because we're feeling the pain of the world, but it's amplifying our own personal pain, so we're thinking it's our own pain. So we try to solve our own pain with things like addictions and, and all these band-aids, when the resolution is to switch to that altruistic way and empathetic way that we already are anyway, it's just a matter of action. And I was on the Bay Area Mandala Project website again, and they have something really cool. They have a special messages support line and support email. And I'll pop it up on a picture here. But I was thinking of calling my group or something special messages wellness. But then I thought, I don't know about that. But a lot of it is special messages, which is again, just any message that isn't of the self. And they also talked about system diversion strategy and they have this flow diagram about different respites and things they wanna create. And it interests me because actually, since my recent experience of being able to divert myself from the system, I feel like I want to somehow facilitate others to divert themselves from the system, which avoids that extra layer of trauma. And it also avoids the possibility of having iatrogenic illness introduced. So say I went to the psych ward again and I was put on that medication that makes me worse, which would be seen as worsening my mental illness when really it's iatrogenic, it's from the meds. And then the meds make me worse and worse and worse until I'm at such a terrible point that maybe I am discharged to some kind of tertiary care facility where I'm continued on that dose and I have no control over my own medication. So there's no way for me to actually 
get tapered off that med unless a doctor believes me that the med is making me worse because the worsening often justifies the means and I'm not saying that happens in all cases but I know from my own experience that's what happened so the next time around I diverted myself from the psych ward I had control over my own medication for a giving myself extra medication for a short period of time and then taking myself off of it. And now I'm seemingly back to my talkative self. Whereas if I was put on it longer by a doctor doing exactly what's part of the protocol, but not part of the protocol of my nervous system, then I'm kind of screwed. So I'm interested in sharing that so then maybe people will work towards being able to avoid it too because it can be helpful but it can also cause more problems because they don't really ask for one's history at least in the psych wards here it's just like oh let's just start you on this they don't consult community doctors they don't consult previous hospitalizations they don't consult other doctors who have seen me in the psych ward so it's just a crapshoot and that's not cool and what I'm saying is it would take a lot of work if I wanted to work on helping the system see that that's what happened it's and it's not gonna change is what I'm saying so the only way it might change is that is at the level of the person who feels they want to work towards diverting themselves from that and I think a lot of people do divert themselves from that and it's called suicide and it's terrible because the help sucks so often and so people might choose not to call for help and for some of us, if we don't call for help in the nick of time, it's too late. I've had that experience where I don't want to harm myself, but I am on a beeline to, to, to harm myself. And there's this part of me trying so hard not to. It's like this trajectory towards the end. And I'm like trying to divert myself, trying to divert myself, trying to divert myself. And I finally divert myself enough to call for help in the nick of time, but I feel like some people don't have that opportunity because maybe they think, I'm too scared of the help. And we can't ask them to find out if that's true. I think, and I'm not saying that's what happens to everybody, I'm saying for people like me who dissociate get confused, get terrified in something like psychosis or PTSD. Some people plan it and just and do it and that's what they want to do. But there's a certain percentage of people that don't want to. But they're in fear and they're in terror and they haven't planned not to. They don't have a plan not to do it. I have many plans not to do it. And I've created that redundancy for myself. 
and I haven't really been in danger of that for two years but I still have all the safeties and because I have the safeties I feel like I can get myself off that beeline path to one of my safety nets and that used to be the psych ward but since I had a bad experience now I know when I'm in that that state where I'm trying to get myself off to where I'm trying to get myself off the trajectory of harming myself and that was diverting myself to the psych ward calling for help so somebody would take me to the psych ward but now I don't know if I'm going to divert myself onto that trajectory and last time I didn't and I got myself to safety with my family and luckily they didn't take me to the psych ward because I took a Seroquel myself so it was a calm enough that they didn't get freaked out and in that way I was able to divert myself from the psych ward and from doing something to myself which I didn't actually feel like I would but being in that fearful state long enough one can only stand it for a certain period of time so yeah I think it's awesome to create a systems diversion strategy and have different respite centers and things like that but in the meantime some of us individuals could create a diversion strategy of our own as part of say a wrap plan you know wrap crisis plan there's a section in there acceptable and unacceptable treatments if you say unacceptable treatment is the psych ward or unacceptable facility well then you have to put in something else you have to put in this friend's house and you have to maybe make sure you take a PRN so when you get to the friend's house you're calm enough that they're not going to take you to the psych ward there's a lot of thinking in place to make that happen because right now there aren't peer respite centers there aren't medication free facilities there aren't facilities where you could rest and then take your own PRNs or safety houses is just not out there so I want to continue to be able to not have that extra trauma of going to the psych ward as it creates another layer of trauma especially if it doesn't go smoothly which is often dependent on how the doctor practices and that's a variable I don't like because there are a lot of great doctors but then there are some that are paternalistic or maybe they just don't resonate and a lot of times if you say well this doctor doesn't resonate with me that's not a good enough reason to switch which I think it should be because relationship and connection are the most important factor in healing but to avoid that in general I have to avoid the psych ward and I did it once and I feel it's likely that I'll be able to do it again and so it's possible that the psych ward has lost a lifelong customer so we need to if we want divert 
our trajectory away from the system. So for people with trauma, dissociation, and psychosis, going to the hospital can make it worse or can re-traumatize us or add that extra layer of trauma. So we have to have safety, lots of redundancy in our safety, and prevention from getting caught in the system to avoid re-traumatization and iatrogenic illness. The other day when I was listening to TED Talks, I listened to one by Adam Grant about, are you a giver or a taker? And he mentioned in the video about finding small ways to add large value to people's lives, such as connecting someone up with someone who can really support what they're doing. Or, And I was thinking that I would like to find small ways to add large value to the life of my peers. And when I go to California, I'm taking the train and I'm thinking of listening to some of my old videos and maybe attempting to extract some of the key points and maybe making a summary video or making a summary document or something like that as a way to be able to add large value with something small if it's like a one-page document or a quick video and it's more large value as a small bit versus all my conversations with myself are pretty long and I'd be surprised if anyone watches a lot of it and it could be good to do that because a lot of what I've said to myself just comes out spontaneously so I never really had it written down and I still don't some of it I have written down but a good chunk comes out spontaneously so it would be a way of harvesting myself dialogue for the things that might be of value to people and somebody could watch all the videos and find them themselves so I'm not sure if I'll make a summary video or not or it might be cool to make it into some kind of weekend retreat something that is actually embodied and something or maybe both and even the self-dialogue with myself could be a large way to add value to my life or it could be a large way to add value to the life of other people, I have no idea. But the small way to add value might just be to say, talk to yourself and have a dialogue with yourself because it's not necessarily about clinging to what I've come up with. Even me, I don't cling to what I've come up with. I don't even remember most of it. It's more about the process and, and getting that language of speaking to oneself 
based on what one perceives. So then maybe walking throughout life, one can speak about what one perceives and feels as opposed to having it translated into our own voice attacking ourselves even more, which makes us non-functional when it's really a language of trying to speak about what it is we're feeling and perceiving beyond ourselves. But if we only have the language about me, then anything we feel and sense is going to be translated into more of the me. But we're feeling and sensing something other than the me, but it comes through as this me. And then this me, when our voice has the volume turned up or comes to us as other people's voices or whatever, which just shows that it's something other that we're perceiving, then it's a double whammy when it gets turned into something is wrong with us. When we're sensing what's wrong out there, but we don't know how to share and talk about it and we don't know how to act on it. And that's why so many of us, if we go into mania, we get connected with this sense that we have to save the world. And then when we move through that to a certain point, we realize we can't, and then we fall back down into our ego instead of being in sort of that superhero consciousness when we feel like we really can change the world with our actions. And it's usually just the small, kind actions and gestures we're doing in the moment, which is still true now. But for some reason, when we stop believing that we can affect the world and that we are sensitive to the world, then we go back to playing this ego, but it's a crushed version of it because we were crushed from the way we were perceiving which was other than the ego. And then when we have to come back to this ego perception, we don't really want that kind of perception, especially because when we do, we're still sensitive but then those sensitivities are translated into the ego. When before, those sensitivities, when we're up in the higher states, are translated into action, are translated into gesture, are translated into spoken word of sharing with another or being there for another or so many things. And the thing is that that state is completely non-habitual. So it's difficult to navigate forever, but we can still embody that and move towards that and realize that even though we're having these seemingly personal problems, it's not a personal problem. We're sensing more things which are translated into our own voice turned against us in something like anxiety or depression or body sensations of anxiety and depression. We're feeling other energies and it's coming into our bodies and we try to numb those sensations but that's not going to fix the problem this altruistic sense and this altruistic language and way of communicating and being and existing will change it just imagine that when we were in mania we knew we could sense all of this stuff and we felt it and we knew it felt magical and like love and ecstasy. And that was the increased sensitivity. 
Now imagine when we come down from that and we're at the bottom and we're in so-called depression, we still feel all of that, but now we've lost that capacity to be able to act and be one with it. We've sort of become overwhelmed by it. And that's one of the reasons why I actually feel like we need to be embodied in our mania, in our altruism together because together we're stronger because we can actually walk this out together if it's just me walking out that path in an embodied mania I'm going to be unfolding that world as I move through time and space or as time and space moves through me but if I'm with a group of 10 people or 5 people as we move, we're actually unfolding more of that, more of that time and space of that way of being is being channeled through us. And maybe we're seeing the same thing at the same time. So if I see the world in a certain way and I'm walking with five other people who see it that way too and experience it that way, it's more powerful than if just one person is and it's less likely to burn out as we can support each other in those perceptions and in our convictions I guess can we be synchronous together I actually feel like there could be a small group of us it would be handy to have some kind of business but I'm not a business person so if somebody was part of the group that did no business stuff, as insights and ideas unfolded within the group, they could be turned into businesses that help the world. Because that's one of the ways that things get done in the world is through business. So if anybody's into business and wants to unfold some insights into social purpose businesses and social enterprises and things I'm all for it and that's another thing if I get an idea where I'm thinking wow that would be a cool thing to unfold through business but I'm not a business person it's gonna take me a lot longer to learn that in order to unfold that which prevents other ideas so if I'm more about insights and ideas and other people are too, but at least they have the skill of business. They can help put that together. And if they have insight and ideas too, they'll see if that is something worth unfolding in the group. So that process makes it a little bit more embodied as a group, group embodiment or community embodiment or like Ricardo Semler talks about the teal organization as a whole organism, not just a family, but an evolving organism. So can a group be like a new organism, working as one and sharing their specialties like organs do in the body? So each person being like an organ in this new organism of an organization of humans that move about based on perception. And I wonder if 
as a group, we could find small ways to add large value to people's lives. And that would be acknowledging that we do have gifts. So if we put our gifts together, can we use some of those gifts to help people, whether they're people like us or so-called normal people? I'm sure each one of us has some sort of powerful something or other that we can put together to really help others. And I was thinking about a company in terms of company, as in who wants to be in my company? Who wants to be around me? Who do I want around me? And it's the evolution of my company or the people that are within my reach. And I'm not trying to say that as some kind of like big woo-woo thing, but just as friends. And I talked before about the Pure Potential Project, bringing out the potential in each other and and sort of like, do you want to spend some time in each other's company? It's just a project. And I was thinking about this self-dialogue too as evolving the conversation around mental health or the conversations we have with ourselves, which could be the same thing and the ones we have with each other and how we talk about it. But not just how we talk about it, but how we talk as people who connect with this other consciousness, this other language, this other way of using language, which is the language of seeing and saying. So this self-dialogue has helped me evolve the way that I see myself and the way that I talk with myself and even with other people. I like the term perception leader rather than thought leader maybe perception facilitator because leading implies following and perception is something that we see and we see it for ourselves whereas thought is something that we memorize and we take it into our brain and make it part of a pattern. If we see something, we don't have to do that. So it's more about perception and insight rather than thought. And if we all had perception and insight, we wouldn't need thought leaders because we'd all be equally able to perceive and see and say what we see, not say what we think and opinions that we've memorized from other people. And I've heard people say we're human doings and we need to be human beings. I feel like we need to be human seeings. We need to actually start seeing. There's no point in being and being blind. And the language of the brain, the brain is a perception device and perception is based on light. So the brain kind of filters the light into sound 
but usually we're stuck in the sounds of our mind, which are producing this sort of fake light. We're creating that light instead of receiving the light and creating and giving voice to that light, which further unfolds that light. But if we're just stuck hearing our own sounds and creating this false light, the actual light is filtered through that false light and we're not really seeing what's there so we can't actually say what's there. We're not seeing the relationships of what's there, we're seeing our own judgments which are sounds in our mind which produce this false light, these images. And that's the division. It's division. We allow our brain to be like a jukebox. It has all these recordings in it and it's just playing them one after the other. And the brain is a wondering device. It's designed to wonder and to wander, not to focus. So really this other language is just the language of perception and the language of the brain is the language of perception. If we speak the language of thought, it's the language of deception. We're deceiving ourselves that that's the truth when it's not. It's just thought. And that language is more metaphoric, especially when we first get connected with it. We see metaphors everywhere because it's because it's the language of relationship. This is like this. This is as that. I just heard something take a tumble. And it was actually this big icicle mass that I took a picture of earlier because I went outside because it's so beautiful with all the snow. And now it's all gone. It's just a pile of smashed ice. So the universe created that beautiful structure by virtue of the laws of nature and physics and whatever. And then it was just crushed and crashed. And I was thinking, I think my video blog, my video log, my video journal, my self-dialogue creates neurogenesis, at least for myself. But maybe it'll spark something in you. It'll spark you speaking as what you perceive. The relationships and relatedness you perceive. And we perceive some of this suffering, this extra suffering, this energy, the suffering of Gaia, the trees, 
nature. We don't know how to talk about it, and we don't talk about it, we don't know how to act. So it gets translated into personal pain. But what if we knew how to act? What if we knew how to do all we can do? What if we could do the best we can? And in mania, we get connected with that. We get connected with the best we can in each moment without thinking, I'm trying to do the best I can. Just being and and seeing the best we can. By seeing the best we can, we're able to act the best we can. So again, it's about perception. And so I feel like this could cause neurotribe genesis because it's one thing for neurogenesis in one's own brain but when one starts that process and the self-dialogue process and self-learning and thinking and seeing oneself differently if more people are doing that that before mainly identified with having some kind of label of pathology then all of a sudden we're sort of a neurotribe of people that see in this way and speak in this way and speak to each other in this way so it's neurotribe genesis and I think this could be one of the main things that people actually want is to be able to see for themselves not see through the self, the ego self, but see for themselves and see as themselves and see themselves in relationship to the world. Not in relationship to past memories. And I feel how we look at somebody if we're seeing the relatedness, the similarities, if we are that relationship between us and another, it allows that other person to come into that space as well. And those relationships are what cause neurogenesis. The neurogenesis of cooperation which can only happen when we see the same thing and to cooperate on an opinion or a thought or an idea is like a dead thing because it's always changing it's always new whereas if we're cooperating based on perception in the moment then that's something that's constantly evolving and changing and I remember Dr. Abram Hoffer said that a lot of mental illness is a perceptual disorder. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I have a perceptual disorder or a perceptual problem, but sometimes I have a problem with what I perceive. And that makes it seem like it's my problem. Or it can create problems within me if I am not able to act on that problem or at least share that so for example when I was working in mental health 
I would have a problem with how clinicians would see the people I was supporting. I can tell how they're looking at them with a clinical eye and I have a problem with that. But how can I say to the cl clinician, I have a problem with your clinical eye? It's, I can say that to myself and then I can work to remove myself with that situation because if I'm always surrounded by seeing that it's going to be re-traumatizing to me which is going to make me look like I have a problem when I have a problem with what I'm seeing and if I can't give voice to that then it's going to be turned on me and maybe that's part of it is that we walk by things, we walk by things, we rationalize things. But as we walk by these things that we see, but we're not really realizing that we see, we're actually accumulating it within ourselves. But if we can give voice to that, then it's moving that energy somewhat. If we can do something about it, that's even more powerful. And that could be why people in these altered states sometimes are saying all these strange things because they're just saying what they perceive moment to moment and just giving voice to it to sort of dissipate that energy because they are perceiving things moment to moment. And normally, we're not perceiving moment to moment. We're listening to our ego talk in our head. So when we switch to this other mode of perception, we're saying out loud that which we see in the moment or something related to it but not exactly what we see in the moment because we're not used to speaking based on seeing in the moment. We're used to speaking based on waiting for the right abstraction, the most clever abstraction that we can associate with while we're listening to someone else talk, come up into consciousness and holding on to that until it's our turn to speak, and then we say it. If we can perceive in the moment, we don't need to do that. And when we do, and we're walking down the street and we first get acquainted with this we're saying strange stuff but really we have to learn to speak based on perception and when we first get acquainted with it some of it's mixed in with our own crap and then it can be scary as well and we're saying things on of our own crap too so again it's a different way to use language we're not being used by language, we're using language in a creative way, even if it seems somewhat out there. And the thing is too that if we're walking around perceiving in the moment, and then there's a perception in the moment that we decide to cling on to and believe, well then we can get stuck in that. And it's possible that people can get lost in certain beliefs of the perceptions they have when really this perceptual process is infinite and always changing and it's very important to not believe any of it and release it and not remember any of it because that's the only thing that keeps it going is not trying to remember and not trying to make it into a clever ego thing because the ego saves things for cleverness but the thing with the perception is that it's always new creative and it'll always be surprising even to the one who is perceiving and speaking.
So when one speaks as perception, you're surprised by what you say. And that's truly creative, just like a painter will paint something and be sort of surprised by it if it happens organically, creatively. So this perception is a creative act. So remember, the light coming from your eye causes brain growth or atrophy in the other. It can cause neurogenesis or the neurons to degrade. I believe it was Wayne Dyer who said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. I wrote quite a bit of stuff, so I'm just gonna say it, and I'm just gonna say stuff and try and get through some of the stuff that I wrote. And some of it has to do with light and sound. And I was thinking about sound, pretty much the sound of our own voice in our own head. And what is this sound trying to do? It's actually trying to guide us to the light, the light of perception. And the ego voice is deception. But when we have access to the light of our perception, then we're not trapped in that deception. Yet at the same time, it's not really deception because it's trying to move us towards that which we want to see because we don't want to see those thoughts and those thoughts are trying to move us towards something else and then we think by focusing those thoughts we're going to find that something else but it's not actually that that sound wants to see which is actually receiving the light, perceiving the light, and giving voice to a different sound. And we think thoughts create things, but really I feel like thought, as in sound, is what steers us. It's our steering wheel. And it doesn't necessarily create things, but it steers us towards that. And we're seeing that which we're thinking about. It's making that salient. So the light isn't salient because we have all this sound in our head. And the sound in our head is what's dulling our sensitivity. And it's difficult to see beyond these sounds, these soundscapes of the ego. When we see something new, sometimes that's when we have an experience of awe. And Jason Silva says that's when we have to rearrange our mental models or our thinking in order to capture that new thing that we saw. But imagine if we were seeing new things all the time, we wouldn't really need mental models because we would just be in connection with that which we were seeing in the moment. We wouldn't really have time to make up mental models about it. So with mental illness, we're actually pathologizing this sensitivity, this sensitivity to seeing beyond the ego, which we translate into the ego because we don't know how to see and act. So if we have this state of empathy, yet we don't know how to translate that empathy into altruism, empathy is sort of this passive state, whereas altruism implies empathy a lot of the time. 
but it's an active state. So if we're able to make our sensitivity and our empathy altruistic, then we're not necessarily going to be turning these perceptions against ourselves as a way to try to understand that we are perceiving pain and suffering. And in the same way, these soundscapes in our mind are preventing us from seeing too much. Because if we saw more than just our ego thoughts, if we saw beyond our ego thoughts, if we saw beyond ourselves, we would feel that, and then we might actually have to do something about that which we see. So the perceptive sensitive state is an active state, it's a state of action. And when you think about the way we're programmed, we're programmed to be passive and just consume and consume our entertainment and not really create. And when we get into the state of perception, our brains actually run on light instead of sound. They're fueled by the light of perception instead of the sound in our head, and that's a waste of energy. Sound vibration is slower and it's noise compared to the high speed vibration of receiving the nutrition of light perception and not the sound of deception. And that's the thing, when we see, we don't know what to do with our perceptions. In self-dialogue, I'm giving voice to some of my perceptions. And maybe some of us that are just that sensitive are actually healers because we can see things and give voice to them and perhaps heal them when other people don't necessarily see those patterns or if we don't see something it's it's difficult to act on it to resolve it so it's the language of perception instead of the language of programming and if we can perceive that we're programmed that's what undoes the programming and, and not adding more programming and more habits and more how-to's and more one-two-threes and everything like that. And I feel like our empathy, people that are sensitive, people that are often labeled, the empathy gets turned into thought, usually against oneself, as a way to sort of speak to the suffering one is perceiving, perhaps. And the volume is turned up, because if it was just sensed as one's so-called normal thought process, then it would just be normal. There's no warning sign that there's something happening, there's something going on, there's something that needs help and healing, or listening, or witnessing, or anything like that. But imagine if we can turn our empathy into altruism instead of thought. Because so much of so-called mental illness is thought disorder. But really all of thought is disorder. And that's something that Krishnamurti says. Not that there's some healthy thought. And I feel like by turning our empathy into altruism we can outgrow stigma. Because if we have this empathy and this sensitivity, it's a gift to perceive some things that do need healing and be able to give voice to that and move towards acting in a way that resolves some of it. And I got an email from the Healing Voices movie 
and they had a sentence in there that said, a chance to restore a sense of our shared humanity through intentional dialogue. And what struck me was that this sense, this map conscious sense, this trans conscious sense, this altruistic, empathetic, highly sensitive sense is actually a sense of our shared humanity. So to me, the sense of our shared humanity is being restored, but it can be acknowledged and amplified and unfolded through this intentional dialogue. That sense has become awakened, but what is it that that sense is going to unfold if we're able to understand it? I don't even want to say use it because to me it feels like we have this empathy but we're not understanding it and because we're not understanding it it's being pathologized and because it's being pathologized it's turning into this personal isolating problem that gets us to focus on ourselves when really we're sensing out something other than ourselves that's calling us to act on that but we don't have that capacity but we can awaken that capacity more through dialogue with each other talking not just about this sense of shared humanity, but what is this sense of shared humanity wanting us to see and say and heal? And I was listening to a talk with Krishnamurti and he said that insight changes the nature of the brain itself. And that implies some kind of neurogenesis or neuroplasticity, insight, perception. While I'm traveling, I'll be missing out on some different committees I could be on for mental health and one of them's for a new hospital that will be built here with the psych ward and I feel like I would like to participate but in a way going away and not participating is sort of like saying I've participated in mental health for two years speaking, committees, peer support so many different things And I don't know if the system can be changed, and it will change slowly like it does. But I feel a bigger change can happen individually. And by now, feeling somewhat free from the psych ward and the mental health system, not completely, but free enough to travel and feel safe doing that, I think that's huge because so many of us that get labeled probably think that we can never do that again. So I think by doing that, instead of going to meetings about creating a new psych ward, I'm living my life from a vantage point of transcending the psych ward. And if I can do that, and share that, I would feel happier being able to show that that's a possibility for other people. Not the possibility of a better psych ward, which will happen over time slowly, but the possibility of not needing the psych ward. Not feeling like one has to live within a 10 minute ambulance ride of the psych ward. So thought creates thoughts and vision creates insight.
and perception and insight is new and therefore creative. I don't know if I talked about this, but I realized the other day how much I'm going to miss everyone here. Not that I wasn't aware of that, but I became acutely aware of it. And I was reading Steve Pavlina's blog, and he had some questions for decision making, and one of them was, what would my best self do? And my best self would definitely go on this journey. I went on this journey six years ago in the state of mania, though I didn't feel like I was in the state of mania when I went there, likely because the place was so high energy that it just resonated with that, that I wasn't manic at all, even though everything was magical and beautiful and perfect. I didn't feel manic because it just resonated with the place I was in. But when I came back to where I live, it's not the same energy level, it's just not. And so I was still in the energy level of the place I was in, and I came back here, and that distance between where I was and the energy level of this place, you can think of Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenetic fields, it made me seem manic because I was at such a high level compared to the energy of this place. So that's the space that I worry about when I come back. I'll still be in this higher energy. Well, how do I get back to this lower energy without seeming so high? We'll see about that. And he asked, do I want the memory? I do want the memory of going on this trip. And he also asked, can I reverse this decision? And I can, I can come back if I'm not doing well or not enjoying myself. So it's not etched in stone. Is this decision testable? Well, I've already been to the place. I've already been to the area. So I already know that I like it. So I have tested it out before. And I also listened to an interview of him by somebody and he was talking about his open relationship status and, and how he navigates that and how when he started talking about it openly then people that were like-minded could find him. So if you broadcast your differences, like-minded people can find you. And that's actually one of the cool things that could come about in these videos is that like-minded people might start conversations with me. Where I live, it's hard to find people that think about mental health differently. And that's why a lot of people go to online communities to find like-minded people because it's easier than just leaving it to random chance of meeting people. Steve Pavlina was also talking about polyphasic sleep and how he did a five and a half month stint of sleeping like that, which is something like sleeping for 20 minutes every four hours or something. So he commented that it's like you're up all the time. It's like every day just melds into one long day. And I was thinking about people who go into mania and when I was in that state for the first time, 
six years ago and I was sleeping only two hours a night and I would lay down maybe once in a day and I was wondering if sometimes people just naturally go into this polyphasic sleep some people go into it mania some people condition themselves to have that lifestyle not very many but what I'm trying to say mm -hmm. is perhaps polyphasic sleep is natural for some people at some time in that people in mania go into that kind of sleep cycle similar or imagine if somebody's in mania they're only sleeping two hours a night what if that person tried polyphasic sleep and actually tried to get into a routine of sleeping 20 minutes every three or four hours or whatever it is maybe their body's just naturally going into that because it's a state of really being active and acting in the moment and when we're acting in the moment we become a unit of action of the universe and the universe is trying to get stuff done through us and maybe in a way we as manics need to practice understanding how the universe is trying to get stuff done through us because it's not necessarily all stuff that we would do and we would want to do the universe is trying to use us to get stuff done so I'm just wondering if instead of thinking somebody needs to be drugged into sleeping eight hours a night maybe they just need to find a different type of sleep pattern and maybe it's not really congruent with the pattern of society so if somebody has an eight-hour day job and they're a manic and they're wanting to do polyphasic sleep it might be difficult but when somebody is a manic, they're sort of employed by the universe and the pay kind of sucks. But if we were able to understand it and, and harvest it, then it might actually pay well. If people were seen for their insightfulness and their ideas and innovations and, and harvested. So it's like harvesting the human brain when the brain goes into a high energy state and somebody has access to that, they should be harvested. And that's usually missed because it's because a person is caught when the tail end of that energy is fizzling out and then they're starting to go into a place of fear and things because they've just been in a state with access to other information than one is used to. And being in that high energy and inspirational and ecstatic state, when one comes back to regular consciousness, that contrast makes it fearful. Going from being ecstatic to being normal is scary. And it's almost like this, it's almost like a person has access to this pocket of energy and it doesn't last forever and part of the reason why it doesn't last forever is that somebody has to also coexist in the consensus reality and if the pocket lasted forever it would make it difficult for the person to to exist in consensus reality 
So I sort of wonder if I could do polyphasic sleep because I've already experienced a long period of time where I was only sleeping two hours a night. I've sort of thought about how it seems like now I just make videos part-time. I just talk to myself part-time. Sometimes an hour a day, sometimes three or four hours a day. When I add in editing and stuff. And sometimes I wonder if I should be trying to create something specific. But I feel like if I just keep having this conversation with myself, at some point, I'll know what to do. I feel called to talk about this stuff, and I have for quite a while. I even found a video from like two years ago where I was sort of testing just making a video. And little bits here and there, but it wasn't until June of 2016 that the conversation really started. And I guess part of my plan is to talk to myself for about 14 months and then maybe just release it all at once or slowly over time, I don't know. The slowly over time might be interesting if I make a video that is about a year later from that same point and release those two at the same time. Or I could do that but create videos for two years and then I'd have year one and year two and just see the comparison. And it could be good to do that because, because I started to make videos shortly after my bad psych ward experience and then I had a crisis and I managed to stay out of the psych ward and that was eight and a half months later and so now it could take eight and a half months to find out if I'm able to not have a crisis for eight and a half months and if I do how do I manage that crisis and I do kind of want to document more of it because I was a little bit apprehensive to do so the last time. So I guess what I'm saying is the self-dialogue is one thing but the actual things that happen in life that I'm hoping the self-dialogue will heal or help with happen slowly. So I feel that this self-dialogue did help me have the strength to avoid going to the psych ward. And now I'm wondering if through self-dialogue I've talked myself out of working so much in the mental health system, so now this next period of time is sort of being embodied and living somewhat in flow, living somewhat like a manic would instead of working in mental health, just living as a manic. And seeing what happens. So that's the embodied part. And 
during that time, I want to harvest some of my self-dialogue. So I've harvested my mania. I've talked a lot about so many different things, which has helped me embody somebody who can avoid the psych ward, which makes me feel free enough to travel, to live like a manic. It's almost like I'm starting from the beginning. I was living like a manic. I came back here and I went crazy. And Adam Grant in his TED talk also talked about be a successful giver and that success is about contribution. And I'm hoping that this can be part of my contribution. I really don't know, but if it helps somebody see themselves differently, see their gifts and their strengths, then that's amazing. And it's my dream and hope that one day a person like me who gets labeled won't have to talk to themselves for a whole year in order to talk themselves out of what they've been told and what unfolded as a result of that. Maybe some of this stuff will be self-evident at least to people who experience being labeled. I hope it allows people to trust more in their own subjective experience. What we feel in our hearts and what we see with our eyes. Sometimes the words are all confused. And that's the thing, this is more about intuition and gut instinct and sensing than logic. That's why when we get connected with these states, we're acting irrational and illogical because we're sensing things beyond logic. So the fact that we're acting irrational and illogical just shows that we're connected with something beyond logic. It's the language of the heart. And when the heart is disturbed, then we seem to be disturbed. And Adam Grant, in his talk, shared a word I've never heard. He shared the word pronoia, which is the opposite of paranoia. So in paranoia, we think everybody's conspiring against us. But in pronoia, we think everything's conspiring to help us. That's sort of what mania feels like, actually, and that's what synchronicity is. So can we be pro-noia for each other as peers? Can we conspire to help each other and do everything we can to help each other? And Adam Grant was interesting in that he said that he wants to help create a world where givers succeed. And I think people who get connected with trans consciousness and this altruism are givers but we don't actually know how to give our gifts and we don't know how to be altruistic even though we've connected with that sensitivity and empathy so I would hope that he would help people that have been labeled with mental illness become successful givers 
because mania is like an extreme attempt to be an incredibly amazing giver and then when it doesn't last we fall into this pattern of being takers of the mental health system and that is a system of help that we don't even want to take who wants that but we're forced to take it we're programmed to take it and I think part of the solution is to reconnect with that giver consciousness I'm wondering if medication is kind of like training wheels we're learning how to see and act based on our perceptions but it can also be overwhelming so taking medication tones down the perceptions so we can live in the world of deception with everyone else and I also wonder if some of us who hear voices would hear less voices if we're able to voice our perspectives and I think that's part of what the hearing voices movement and groups are about And I feel like it's important not just for people to voice their perspectives in order to heal their voices, but also to learn how to give voice to their perspectives and their perceptions ongoingly. So if I'm having perceptions and perceptions and I'm not speaking those perceptions and acting based on those perceptions and I ignore them and ignore them, eventually maybe they're turned into this really mean voice against us because we're not voicing our perceptions when we became sensitive because the universe wants us to be sensitive so we can be sensitive to everything and actually see that everything has a place and not destroy nature etc so I feel like it's one thing to share the voices but it's another thing to also share one's sensitive perceptions if that makes any sense because I don't know if it's just about healing our our personal troubles so we can go about our regular routine or if there's something that we're supposed to be seeing and acting on which would heal our personal troubles and heal our routine and, and change it from just being our own personal routine to more of a cooperative effort. So sound and light create neurons. When we see something new with perception and we give voice to it, we're creating new brain cells. I feel like there's a language of neurogenesis, which is the language of perception, which is the language of light, which is the language of translating light into sound. And we can translate light of perception of what we see into sound. We can give voice to that. If we're speaking from the ego consciousness, we're speaking about what we've seen, what we saw, what we memorized, which isn't seeing something in the moment now. 
So I feel like there's soundscapes of neurogenesis. And I was thinking about first there was the word and it said, let there be light or something. I wonder about that. I feel like first there was the light and the light created the language of awe, of perception. If the word is first and it says, let there be light, it's sort of like saying, whatever we say is what we're gonna see. And usually we're listening to our ego. So if it is first there was the word and it said, let there be light, well then look at the light and let the light speak for itself. The light would have created and unfolded more of the language based on whatever the forms of light were in front of that which was perceiving the light. I feel like we're trying to grow into our perceptions and grow out of our ego. And when we're perceiving that which is beyond ourselves, we have to grow into that. And I was thinking about the special messages support line and how we need to share our special messages, not just get support for them. They can be disturbing, yes. Getting support is like saying special messages are a problem. Well, they could be a solution for something. But again, there's no way for us to give this gift to the world without fear of some kind of punishment. And I feel like the brain can't talk to us because we're full of our own recorded words and memories and images. But the brain would do the talking based on what it's seeing. If we eliminate all our memory, all our history, all our past, all our personality, we're just this human perceiver. And what would we say if we were just blank slates perceiving as adult human beings? If we didn't have this ego desire to control, to get pleasure, with all this desire and everything, what would we really say? I feel the brain is trying to be heard and get our attention. And it seems like the brain has a problem with what it's seeing, so it creates a problem with seeing, like hallucinations. And the language of the brain is written over by the language of the ego. And it seems like the brain sort of revolts by using the language of the ego and amplifying it in order to show that it is indeed detrimental and destructive. We don't see it that way until it gets to a certain point that we call pathological, but even all fear, jealousy, anger, and all of that is also detrimental. What is the brain telling us? Imagine if we just spoke as the brain I was thinking about chewing too, because they were saying that chewing crunchy foods is good for neurogenesis. And I was wondering if part of that is not just the crunch, but the fact that when we do eat crunchy foods, we really have to open our mouths and chew and move our lips. And it's actually simulating talking in a way, not exactly, but 
chewing crunchy foods almost created the gesture to get the jaw and the mouth and the lips and the tongue moving in ways that it would need to move in order to have the strength and capabilities to speak. So if monkeys only chewed or didn't really chew and, and slurped soup or just ate very soft things where it didn't actually have to chew, it would never really get those strengths in the mouth to start to vocalize things. So I was wondering if chewing crunchy foods is not just neurogenic because of the fact that we're chewing crunchy foods. And I know there is something to do with this, the electricity of chewing. And even chewing is said to strengthen the jaw. So chewing hard things actually deposits more calcium in our jaw. And Victoria Butenko has this little tool that she sells called the Jossercizer because you chew on it like kids chew on things. It's like a chew toy for adults. And she said it actually strengthens the jaw, brings more bone density into the jaw, which actually strengthens the teeth, whitens the teeth, and more circulation goes to the teeth. So they're actually more mineralized and stronger and you need less dentistry, less root canals and things. And she did a lot of research on that. So there is something to that part. So chewing also created the jaw the way it is in order for us to have jaws that we do in order to speak. So I think it's also neurogenic in that it stimulates all of this movement required for talking and so how i relate that is to self-dialogue in that i've done all this talking and also seeing myself talk when i edit the video which is kind of like chewing but for people who maybe don't talk very much don't see themselves talking in self-dialogue chewing crunchy foods is a way to get that motion going to get the mouth moving in ways that they're meant to. We're meant to communicate as human beings and chewing simulates that and I actually feel like chewing vegetables like carrots and things that we had to dig out of the ground are part of what created our mouths in a way that we eventually were able to speak. I really want to help bring out people's potential everybody that I've interacted with over the years, I always see a spark of their gifts that are remaining hidden. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's always so much more. I want to be maybe an inspiration facilitator of sorts. Not just saying, oh, there's hope, but also see your possibilities, see your potential, see your gifts. And I wish that I could create some kind of capacity for those to be unfolded more organically. Because right now people aren't valued, people's gifts aren't valued. As soon as they fall out of the main 
mainstream machine, they're seen as not having value, but really it's just that people can't see the value. And if people could see the value, they would create a world in which people could share their gifts or like Adam Grant said, that givers could succeed. And I think part of the giver population is the population that have been labeled with a mental illness. Imagine if people labeled with a mental illness when they were going through their process of being labeled or something, they were seen as, you have a different gift to give. You were on the wrong trajectory. Maybe you trained as an engineer and, and now you're done with that. You thought you were going to do that your whole life, but what is your, what are your other gifts that you've connected with? And that's what I talked about with the whole different abilities and diverse abilities and abilitation, how we actually acquire new capacities that if there was a place for that in the structure of society, people would have something to step into and they wouldn't have to just divert to the margins. There would be that space. And part of that is what Ricardo Semler talks about with people making their own hours or being paid for the results they produce, not for the hours and being there all day and all these rules and structures that people that get labeled have a hard time oftentimes reintegrating into and so much of the mental health system is about reintegrating people into that system that they fell out of and not seeing that people have gifts that fall into a different way for society to help bring balance for everyone and I think the universe wants me to have this conversation with myself and maybe that's all I'm supposed to do. We're so much more than our labels, but it's hard to tell them that because our gifts are actually sometimes what get us into being labeled. And I wrote down that with the two world thing, that one is the left brain world and one is the right brain world. And I don't know if that's true, but sort of hit me that we might actually switch between left brain mode and right brain mode and that's part of how we move between the two worlds. If we acted based on what we see, if we could actually perceive instead of what we thought, we'd create a different world. And when we see through our images, we can't see the relationship of light. So really the language, this other language, is just the language of light, the language of perception. And I feel we really need to see the best we can and not just be the best we can, because we can only be the best we can when we can see the best we can. And I wonder if there's relational neurogenesis. And I feel like giving voice to perception is giving voice to the light and there is a world of light and there's a world of matter M-A-D-D-E-R
I feel like the world is a combination of the quality of the light coming out of all of our eyes. Do we look with a loving eye? The quality of the light coming out of our eyes, which is usually warped by whatever images we're projecting on our mind screen based on our thoughts. Make your own inner soundscape silent so you can speak the soundscape of light. Translate the light into sound. The sound changes the brainscape of others such that they might perceive, such that they might see with this light too. I am a light manifest as matter. And we all share the same light of consciousness. It's like this accumulation of matter around this light of perception that we are. So we can be a perceiver. They talk about how we're sort of a receiver of thoughts, but it's more like we're a perceiver of light. And we can translate that into sound. And it seems we've lost this language of perception. We've lost the ability to turn the way we receive light into sound because we've turned it into a soundscape of our own ego voice turned against us. This light will always be here. This body is a different matter. The next body is different matter. Share this consciousness. Healing is a matter of perception and healing our perception. And if you're that sensitive, you're a healer. Heal through self-dialogue, through talking with yourself and unfolding the light that you are. Can we have red book conversations? Carl Jung's red book. I haven't read it yet. No pun intended. This mental health stuff is often high sensitivity. We're empaths. It's turned into all of this extra mentalization because we have access to all this other information that we don't understand so it gets translated into more mentalization because we are creatures of mentalization we have mental eyes we don't have eyes that can perceive and when we do perceive it's turned into more sound scape ego scape mentalizations the high sensitivity implies seeing beyond the ego, which is perception. Because if there's the ego, it's this barrier, this sound barrier of deception. If we're empaths, we don't have to be crushed by it. We need to practice moving towards altruism. Otherwise, we'll always be reacting and needing all these safety plans and everything in order to keep ourselves safe from our own perceptions. It's consciousness evolving beyond the ego, seeing beyond the ego. It's perceiving light instead of remembering sound. And perceiving is resounding. It's resounding the mind and that changes the brain neuroplastically. It reorganizes the brain cells. If our brain is organized around perceiving old thoughts and memories of the ego, it's going to be structured differently than if we are 
needing the space to perceive and then create new sounds in the brain. We are piloted by sound instead of light. It seems that sound is light slowed down enough to steer matter. Sounds are for voicing what we see, not for rehearsing the me. Do you create new sound based on the light you see? When we truly perceive in the state of awe, we move beyond mental models. As it seems that with some of the confusing states in so-called mental illness, mental models are rearranging so fast that we're confused. We're saying things that aren't congruent. We see things, we hear things, we're so-called delusional. But what it could be really showing is that when we perceive this light, when we can see patterns, when we can extrapolate, we don't have time to create mental models. Because we can't create mental models of the universe because we are the universe. So that process when that first happens is just trying to show us there's no way to model this. We can see, we can give voice. If we were always in awe, we'd always have to be rearranging our mental models and then of what value or of what relevance would there be of mental models. I feel like we need to surrender the mental models. Because a mental model is like saying that, oh, I need to remember this for later because I might see something similar. But if we're then looking for something similar, we're missing out on something that could bring us the next moment of awe. And I feel each moment can be a moment like that. So if we're unfolding in flow, there's no time to know. And mental models become obsolete the moment they try to coalesce. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.